You're listening to a podcast on Accelerate, brought to you by University of Utah Health. How did you choose to become a physician? Part of it is um, exposure. I'm a, uh, from a family with a lot of physicians, and so um, growing up, it seemed like naturally you would become a physician. Uh, and uh, um, and I think that there's also the uh, the aspect of uh, of being able to incorporate uh, something that is meaningful and, and is, has uh, an element of service uh, involved. Um, and, uh, and you know, frankly, I, growing up, I figured I, I, I couldn't imagine uh, growing up and not knowing how the body functioned. And so I was always very drawn to that, that area of knowledge. Uh, and, then, and then my choice of uh, surgery within medicine was basically that was the only thing I really liked, <laughs> that uh, the, um, the, the ability to, to uh, very concretely fix something uh, in somebody's body and make it work again it was, was very appealing. It, it, it's fun hearing um, Dr. Van Leysen describe this idea of I couldn't imagine not knowing how the body works. And it's funny to me because I don't know that I've ever thought that my, in my whole life. And it's, to me, it's delightful to hear the distinction, to, to hear that somebody says, this just has to happen. But for me, it was a completely different thing. For me, it was, to me, it's just, it's just impact. It's just the fascination with human systems. Why do they work the way that they work? What, what, why do people want to get certain results, but they consistently, individually, <laughs> it, uh, in pairs, in teams, in organizations, in societies, not get the results that they're intending to get. That means that something complex and interesting and to me fascinating is taking place. So my attempt to try and understand that is born out of a curiosity that I don't have a, well, this is where it came from answer. Yeah, and I, and I feel that that's illustrated in the, in the ways that we answer that differently, is that people come with these deep, um, compelling curiosities. Many people have have looked at the way that human systems work and how how organizations function, and you know there's there's tons of literature and, and people looking at it. You have a very um, a distinct perspective on things and a and a, and a certain a set of ideas. Um, how did you how did you arrive at those set of ideas? The um, you know the the basically the essentialism philosophy to uh, to functioning within an organization. Well, it it grew out of exploration and observation um, working with companies in Silicon Valley where I noticed a predictable pattern. And that is that when they early on in their existence, they were small by definition, small team focused on a particular issue. Sometimes that was luck, but it ended up being sort of the right issue at the right time. And that led to success. But then I noticed as part of this predictable pattern, that success would often lead to this massive increase of options and opportunities, which of course sounds like the right problem to have, but what I suddenly saw was that uh, that did in fact turn out to be a problem because it led so often to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so if a once successful organization falls into this undisciplined pursuit of more, that can undermine the very things that led to success in the first place. And so actually, what I found was that success, as often as not, became a catalyst for failure. And, and to me, this was, this was such a different idea and, and answer about success. I mean, this, so this, is, this is a key reason why 
otherwise successful companies don't break through to the next level. It's success itself. And so all the time people are chasing, okay, how do we become successful? But very few people are chasing what to do once they are. And so success, in fact, gets people to... Uh, so so that, that's the context. The, the additional piece is that I suddenly noticed that this was true not just for organizations, but also for the individuals inside those organizations. And I noticed it in a variety of ways, uh, most notably with myself, that in, in a similar period of time, I suddenly realized I was once more focused on what was more important, which was essential. But somehow, in all the busyness and all of the things that were going on, in, in a sense, because of the successes, uh, I was finding that I was getting pulled in a million directions, that I was being busy but not productive. And we can talk more about that, but, but this was a professional and personal insight that suddenly said, no, this is, this is not just another subject, this is, might be sort of the issue uh, that, that I've observed, maybe even the challenge of our mm -hmm. times in some ways. Mm -hmm. So I've, <clears throat> I've encountered that idea um, a, a number of times in, in my reading, and I have sort of a hobby of reading books like yours. Um, um, and you mentioned Jim Collins. Uh, he, he touches on that uh, you know, very briefly in a, in a much uh, a larger context. Um, the one thing I'm sure that, that you're familiar with as well. Um, uh, I, I could, you could argue that the that seven habits um, also uh, talks about prioritization and the you know the f the, the two by two table of uh, of what you should focus on, um, getting things done to some degree um, uh, talks about that. What I thought was to, what was um, distinguishing about uh, your book um, relative specifically to uh, to the one thing because that's probably the one that gets closest is that the one thing seems to focus almost uh, exclusively on <clears throat> on the work environment. And, and how you deal with your work, uh, whereas yours extends into the per, into your personal life, um, and and in particular the the way that the book evolves as as I read it um, is that it starts focusing more on on work, and but then gets to the point where it's actually talking about your wardrobe, you know, and what what clothes you're going to have in your wardrobe, um, and. Uh, um, to me, that, that that makes it much more uh, much more meaningful because you know there's been a lot of, of uh, uh, psychologists who have looked at the impact of personal life and balance and things like that on one's productivity and ability to succeed mm. uh, in their business. Can you comment a little bit about that? Well, the the story I was just alluding to a moment ago. Um, I mean, a, a crescendo moment, at least in hindsight, was when I got an email from um, from a colleague at the time who said, um, look, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby um, because I need you to be at this particular <laughs> client meeting, you know. And, and maybe they were joking, you know. I, but, but nevertheless, Friday comes along and we're in the hospital. Uh, our daughter had been born the night before. And I am feeling torn to somehow keep everybody happy. And... You know, well, if I can just go out for just a little while and everyone's okay here and everything's pretty stable, and then, it, and to my shame, I went to the meeting. And so afterwards, I remember my colleague said, you know, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And maybe they did, and I mean, the look on their faces did not evince that sort of confidence. <laughs> but even if they did, I, I recognize, and you do too, that I'd made a fool's bargain. And this is where I think I learned the lesson, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And so I think coming just back to exactly what you're asking, 
to me, the, the question and issues driving me to write essentialism and to teach about it now is a human phenomenon, not a business phenomenon. But of course, all businesses are driven by humans too, so that's totally relevant there. But, but I don't see it myself as, as a primarily a business question. I see it as a human question that has relevance in both mm-hmm. directions. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that comes across very clearly um, <clears throat> in your book. Um, what, about the, um, what about the generalizability of, of this idea? Um, and I, and spe- thinking specifically about um, you know, the, uh, the idea that, that we should be doing the hell yeah stuff and not the no stuff. Um, or not the lukewarm stuff, even. Um, but in a in a complex um, organization, there's a lot of nobody wants to do stuff. Um, and uh, and how how do we how do we function as an organization that has tedious menial tasks that really need to be done and, and provide, you know provide the the mortar for the more important stuff? How do how does an organization generalize this idea uh, to all the functions of a of a complex organization? Well, let's just let's just start first of all by by emphasizing that the, the book I wrote is called Essentialism. But sometimes, what people hear, if especially if they if if they get caught up in the idea of saying no, is they they think I wrote a book called Noism. And the difference is really important. The the key is not well, we've got to say no to things. Although of course there's a place for that. There's a quarter of the book that's about this theme and elimination of non-essentials. But the key is actually figuring out what's essential. And, and that's where you have to begin. You have to get really good at asking that question yourself. You have to create space to be able to ask it. And also space to be able to do it in teams and in organizations so that you can really get clear. This is, this is what really matters to us. Uh, the, these, are the, these are the quality indicators that are actually critical to us. I mean, almost all quality processes that I've been involved with and in quality improvement programs are about selecting those few things that we think will actually move the needle. And if you don't have that, and then you try to start eliminating non-essentials, you try, well, that, that's just as random as saying yes to everything to say no to everything without thinking about it. So the key is to give permission to yourself and to the people around you to actually begin engaging in the wrestle of essentialism, which is what really matters. What is the work that needs to be done? When people become clear about that, you then have to get clear about who's doing what. So you're now dealing with, okay, we've got strategic clarity first that leads to role clarity is second. In that process, I mean, what I've found is that people, it, it is surprising what people really want to take on and become superb in and, and really um, have ownership for and then mastery of. And, and so we, we, we can assume a bit too quickly sometimes, well, no one will want to do all that work. Everyone will want to do this work. Now, sometimes that's the case. But in my experience, I mean, in fact, the way the conversation began today, the, the, the premise of your life's work is completely different to the intent, the, to, to what was sparking for me. And I think it's, it's, it's endlessly surprising to me how often that turns out to be the case. Mm-hmm. So diversity becomes really important in, a, in an organization that, you, that not everybody is trying to do exactly the same thing. Yes, and... and well, exactly, that there is specialization that somebody can actually take ownership for it, and they really then, I mean, 
something that's menial that you act, that appears to be menial, but someone has really complete ownership of it and they get to buy into it and do something and choose to do it, oh, they can become exceedingly good at it, feel very proud of the work that they're doing because they see their role in the, in the bigger picture. What, what I think is really disempowering to people is a sense of everyone just has to do everything. And well, nobody wants to do any of it, but you just all have to do it. This is, this is um, I think this is missing an enormous opportunity. What it leads to is people become overworked and underutilized. And if you can create space to have the conversations, which I think is the critical behavioral change here. If you can create the space, the emotional space, and the actual time on the calendar for people to talk about this and explore this and get clear about this, you, you reverse that and suddenly instead of people being busy all the time but not productive, you get people that are immensely productive. I mean, we're not talking about like a 2% or 5% improvement. Well, this can be like, this can be like 10 times, even 100 times improvement if you can create the space. I mean, is it, is it not our experience that, that, that the, best, the best employees are so much significantly better than the poorest ones? That to me is, a, is not because they're working 10 times harder or 100 times harder. It's that they've been aligned on the right things, the right, you know, that you suddenly start to utilize people at their highest point of contribution. And, and, and that the difference between achieving that and not achieving it is to do with the space uh, given to the subject. Well, let's explore it. Let's talk about it. That's the work to be done. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned um, alignment, and that's, uh, that's been something that we've done a lot of thinking about uh, within our organization and the, the importance of having um, uh, having incentives aligned, uh, having mission aligned, uh, strategy aligned, um, both on the on the hospital organization side as well as on the uh, professional um, uh, physician and and uh, provider side, um, can you can you comment a little bit about uh, about um, the impact of appropriate or inappropriate alignment or, or misalignment, I should say, on uh, on the ability to for an organization to uh, to function and focus on what's really essential? Mm-hmm. The the I mean, especially in the '90s, right? The word alignment became like beyond a buzzword it was like the thing everyone wanted to talk about it which is for perfectly good reasons but what I always want to add to that conversation is aligned to what the, 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 the one of the one of the breakthrough in, insights that, that, that for me made writing essentialism required for me was this discovery that clarity was being underestimated in its impact that the power of clarity when you get a group of people with a high enough level of clarity, so many problems immediately take care of themselves. So as clarity goes down, politics goes up. And that can go on, f- that, that's like an almost, almost endless trade-off that you can make until organizations are flooded with low trust cultures that just aren't working, uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that to people, the busyness goes up, the stress goes up, because people don't know how to win in their jobs and in their team efforts. So because they don't know how to win anymore, they start playing their own games. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how to win with my boss or with this team, but I'm going to, my game will be looking smarter than the, the person sitting next to my boss in the, in, in the weekly meeting. It, you play other games because you want to win. People want to achieve, they want to be successful. When you can produce 
high enough levels of clarity, which take that this is a process that must be gone through. You can't just announce it. You've got to do it together and hammer it out. You've got to debate it. You've got to ask the hard questions. You've got to deal with the trade-offs, the inherent trade-offs necessary to get to clarity. If you can do that, this is, this is more than 50% of the work. Once people have it, they know they have it, high levels of clarity, they, they can start to self-organize. They can start to, to know how you'd you know, which things to work on, which things not to work on. I remember somebody at IBM once telling me, well, we, uh, they, they said, I, we, you know, I really believe in this idea of essentialism because we, our organization decided at one point, you know, here's our single priority for a whole year. He said the results of that year were absolutely breathtaking, broke through to the next level. And then he said the organization was so taken with the results that the next, the second year they said, well, this year we're not going to have, we're not going to, have one priority, we're going to have three, because it worked so well last year. And then they broke down the very thing that had led them to be able to work so well together. This is, a, is still a highly misunderstood principle. And people get the clarity. Yeah, I, there's almost no leader that will say, well, clarity doesn't matter to me. But often what they'll say is something like, look, Greg, I think we're pretty clear. And, and I wear glasses, right, we both do. Uh, and, and I always think, well, the difference between pretty clear and really clear is really different. And that's what we're talking about. That difference, that dialing up of clarity is, it, it might take 10 times more effort than people think, but it's 100 times more valuable. Once you have it, people's ability to align to it is, is really immense. And, and so that's what I think. When we think about alignment, which I completely agree with, get the work done again, align to what? Get it clearer. Be sure. What are we really concretely trying to do? How will we know when we've got there? What, what is the essential intent, the thing that we are driving everything towards? And then, then you have the, the newest employee, the, the most junior, newest employee is empowered from the second they walk in the door. It, if you don't have that, hierarchy rules. And they just have to go, well, this person asked me to do it, so I've got to do it. And all that inherent intelligence, that navigational intelligence that they had before they walked through the door is gone. And they just got to wait, wait for instruction, wait for what, watch what everyone's doing. I remember a situation working with a team one time where we got an essential intent so clear. First time in the organization's history, it was a completely hierarchical system. And the most junior person in the room in the next meeting after they defined it, as a discussion's going on, and the, and the quietest person in the room, I will add, and a woman, I will add, simply because we need to amplify the voices of women in almost all organizations that we're a part of. So, so here she is, almost never says a word in these meetings. Suddenly, in the middle of the discussion, says, hold on, how does this relate to the essential intent we just came up with? She was as powerful as anyone in the room in that moment because clarity had produced an alternative point of authority. And so we have to do this because hierarchy shuts down so much of the intelligence and the, the capability and the drive inside of institutions. Clarity is, is, a, is, is, a, is a, you know, still something within the reach of every organization. It's not externally determined. You can do it internally that can break through to the next level. Mm -hmm. So we, we often talk about uh, uh, empowerment uh, within an organization, uh, the, you know, empowerment that goes all the way down uh, uh, through the quote-unquote hierarchy. Do you think that that's an essential component of, of empowerment, um, um, creating the, the clarity of mission uh, across the organization? There's no empowerment 
without clarity of mission and of intent and of role. Mm-hmm. It is empowerment, in my view. To simply say to somebody, hey, listen, you can, you, you're empowered. It is not empowerment. To have the sense of this is what we're trying to do enables you to be able to self-organize, to, 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 you'd know how you were trying to help and how you weren't. Here's one of the experiences I had with this. I remember at um, a business school, we, we had a professor in the uh, strategic management of nonprofits, a ter- terrific uh, professor, Mian, and he had us all bring together two or so vision statements from nonprofit organizations. Um, and read them out in class. So we're reading out, you know, a hundred of these things. And and at first, if it started, we start laughing really because you've got a six-person organization and their mission is where we're going to end world hunger or something <laughs> like this. And and you go, this is just ludicrous. You're not going to. That isn't your mission. Whatever that statement is, it's not your mission. And it kept on going like this. Well, one after another, everyone's got their own. Yeah, we'll read this one and this ambiguous statement. And that. These vision and mission statements, their only intended purpose is to give clarity. They're not fit for purpose. And in so many institutions, non-profit and for-profit institutions, they are they're, they're either neutral, meaning people just go, I don't know what that means, put it aside. Or they're worse than that because they're actually confusing. Then somebody in the room says, um, well, I've got Brad Pitt's you know, mission statement from his non-profit. And by this point, we're all laughing. Yeah, well, what's Brad Pitt's going to be? This and they said, uh, here, here it is. And they read it out. Um, the, the, the mission of our institution is to build 250 storm-resistant homes in New Orleans by this date in, the, in this district. It took the oxygen out of the room. Everybody knew what its real mission was. This is what I mean by an essential intent. You know what it really is and what it isn't. I would know whether I want to work for that organization. If I was in the organization as the most junior member, I would be able to start making trade-offs from the first day because I know what we're really trying to do, not just generally what it's all about. That's empowerment, you know, uh, sort of personified. That. This is allowing any person in the institution to be able to take action and to be able to challenge decisions at any place because they know what it's really about. So we're, a, we're an academic uh, medical center. Um, and whereas it's, it's, it's easy um, when you have one mission uh, to create clarity around, you know, we're going to deliver the absolute you know, best, high value, high quality uh, medical care to our population. Um, but we also have a research mission. Uh, we have an education mission. And and sometimes um, when you know in the context of, of limited resources, there's a little bit of competition between them. You know, the education slows down the medical work, and you know, and the and the research uh, uh, clamors for resources uh, from the clinical enterprise. Um, have you had a experience um, examining or, or studying organizations that did have uh, multiple missions, and and how was that? How has that been? Have you how have you seen that navigated? So. Let's just look to a totally different industry for a second in order to explore this industry with new eyes. So look at what Elon Musk is doing. Um, So now he solved it in a slightly different way, of course, by having different companies. But at one level, you can say, well, what a non-essentialist. He's just doing so many different things. Each of those institutions has an explicit essential intent. I mean, it's more than 
it's not a two or three year essential intent as I recommend in the book. It's like a 50 year essential intent, but you know exactly what it is. And every person does. The idea of a dual missioned organization, of course, is challenged in a variety of ways and also has benefits in a variety of ways. What it doesn't excuse is two general mission statements, <laughs> two general ambiguous statements. You, you've got to all, all the more define what we're really trying to do in each. And then, of course, you're looking for what are the synergies and what are the tension points. And, and, and what I want to say about that is simply you've got to engage in that wrestle. Don't use this as the excuse so nobody can use it. Well, you know, we've got all these different competing uh, priorities, so therefore we can't. No, yes, that's the nature of this beast. Now let's engage in it so that we make sure that we still are choosing the very best allocation of these resources uh, across, the, across these two things we care about. I mean, sometimes people, you know, after we talk about this idea of there being really, by definition, only one priority, that you can really have one. Uh, you know, someone will say, well, hold on, you have four children, so who's your priority <laughs> child? You know? and, uh, and, and, and I, think that's, I think that's similar to what you're describing because, because I have four children that I love and I love equally, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be engaging in the prioritization conversation. It doesn't mean that I simply say, well, every day I have to spend, ex I don't know, exactly equal amounts of time with all four of them. And that's not prioritization. It's being aware and having the conversation and engaging and listening and being thoughtful and then still prioritizing. Well, today, this child has a challenge and this is what I need to be focused on. So you still prioritize. You maybe simply say, well, well, I'm going to make you know, touch points with each of them, but I'm really going to invest in this, this issue today. So what I'll say is, again, is it's a challenge, but it doesn't, it's not an excuse for not hammering this out again and again until we say these are the two missions exactly, these are the essential intents we're pursuing, and let's now look at how we have to make the hard decisions together, together, to debate and discuss and figure out what we really agree are the best utilization of these, uh, of these resources. Does that make sense? It does, yes. Yeah. No, so I, so my, my department has three children then. <laughs> we, have, we have the education child and the research child and the clinical care child. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, and I think just in, the, just in the hospital space at all, in the health care industry at all, there's, there's one more additional layer that's really tough about it. But we can't let the toughness turn us into non-essentialists. The toughness is, well, all of this is life and death. So you say, well, how are we not going to do this thing over here? I mean, if we don't do that, this person doesn't get the care that they, that they want and need. And that, that logic, of course, is absolutely true, but it's also missing another equally true point, which is that you don't have unlimited resources. If you have unlimited resources, fine, do everything. <laughs> if, you know, sometimes I'll take the, the devil's advocate of Peugeot or, or, or look at the opposite and say, well, let's all be non-essentialists all the time, all the time. It's working so well, let's never sleep. Let's do absolutely everything anybody wants us to do. Let's pursue every idea we have ever thought of. Let's just do everything, because if we don't do that, somebody somewhere will be disadvantaged. And of course, it's so absurd, you know. 
So by the same token, we have to say, okay, if there's three children, that's great. These are all important. Now, how are we going to allocate the resources between them? How are we going to make the, the be leaders, balance compassion and courage to actually produce the, be the best breakthrough results that we can? We won't be able to treat everyone. We will not be able to do everything. I didn't make up that problem. We, that problem precedes essentialism. What, what I, I think I'm trying to do is, when we, when we talk about essentialism, we draw attention to realities, be honest about what we have and what we don't have, what we can and what we cannot do. And now, because it's limited, because we have finite resources and infinite ways of spending those resources and using those resources, we therefore have to make these decisions. How do we make them? We can either make them reactively, that's like the, the worst way to make them, or we can make them collectively, wisely, but really still do the prioritization work. And, th and that's what I'm advocating. That's what an essentialist does. They don't, they don't pretend they can do everything. They are honest and therefore have the courageous conversations uh, and, uh, and, and in a very gentle and, and, and wise way, but they still don't avoid that responsibility. Mm. So as a... As a as a human being and a and a and a father and and uh, and somebody who, who deeply cares about a family and and your community, um, and being on the outside of of healthcare, what would what would you hope that a um, uh, an academic medical center such as ours uh, would create as that uh, clear essential uh, purpose? The the metaphor that comes to mind is um is of, of again another completely different industry but you'll see the connection and and by the way i really think the best way to look at our own industries is outside because they don't hold the same assumptions we do and that's critical to breakthrough thinking so this is a police chief well let me just put it this way can you remember the last time you were pulled over for a ticket yes okay when you visualize that moment the, the, the police officer coming to your window and you're thinking don't say that. <laughs> you, you, you're thinking, you're thinking, is this going to be a positive ticket or a negative one? Right? Mm -hmm. No. Impossible. Well, I am thinking, is this going to be a ticket or a warning? <laughs> is it a ticket or a warning? And how can I try and persuade it to be a warning, not a ticket? How polite can I be right now? The, the, the reason we don't think positive ticket versus negative is because there's a deep assumption, so deep we don't even think about it, that tickets are going to be negative, and that's the only way to do policing. In fact, that is the purpose of policing. The point of policing is law enforcement. Somebody breaks the law, you catch them, and there's some punishment. But that isn't how policing began. Policing began in the, in the United Kingdom, and it was about community building. If you can believe it, it's so different than what the, the version we have of it today. Ward Clapham was the uh, police chief by a different name in, in Canada. And he had this, suddenly this, uh, when he created the space to look at what was essential, he discovered this completely misaligned uh, purpose that everyone's doing a whole set of activities based on an assumption that was totally at, at odds with what the original assumption was, the original intent. So there's no efficient way of solving that problem. If you simply take a, let's say, a getting things done approach, let's efficiently do what we're doing, you just give more tickets to more people faster. And he's going, this is just, he's like, this is madness. His intent became the end of crime. 
He doesn't want to catch people after the fact. He wants to end crime. If you really have that as your intent, suddenly almost everything they were doing becomes non-essential. He said, he said, 90% of the paperwork we'd done before, I just told them to stop doing. Literally stop doing. Can you imagine how bold that was? Which is not doing it. You have to get out there into the, into the community and build relationships and connect with people and catch them doing the right thing. Because our mission is about prevention, not about catching people afterwards. And he gets serious about this. Now, at the time, the recidivism rates in his city were about 50, you know, about 60-something percent. That's true in most of the Western world. You're in jail, the chance of you going back to jail about 60%. He reduced that over a 10-year period to 8%. That's unthinkable. You'd never get there by just doing negative tickets. Impossible. If, if we would, we'd already be there. He reduced overall crime by 40% and reduced youth crime in half. So these are extraordinary results, right? The question is, what's the equivalent of that within the healthcare industry? The goal has got to change. You cannot simply catch people after the fact. You cannot simply be in an endless cycle. We know we, we pay lip service. I'm, I'm not preaching in this moment something that nobody believes. It's just the resource allocation to, towards prevention. What do you think it is in the budget in, in the healthcare industry of the United States on prevention? It's just nothing. You know, I don't know. I don't have the numbers, but I cannot imagine it's higher than 1%. Everything's on after the fact. Everything's in, you know, uh, end of life, suddenly emergency moments. Could we put, could, could we change the intent? What if we change the intent? What if the whole in, f focus of what we're trying to do really was, <laughs> people don't ever go to a hospital. We just end, we just end these. Of course there's exceptions to that. You can't solve all things by prevention, but to me, that's, that's like, that's the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. That's the chance to do something transformational. Right. And what you're talking about is, is accountable care. Uh, yeah. really is, is the way that we would uh, describe it. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the challenging reality is that we profit from people being sick. Yeah. Um, that's how we make our money. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and only through, uh, in a few organizations that have been able to, um, to profit from wellness, uh, in other words, uh, make money on the insurance premium um, so that the healthier the population is, the more money they make, uh, the, the greater the margin. Um, that's, that's, I think, what, what, you're, what you're talking about is getting to the point where we as a health system um, are actually um, uh, benefiting and have, have alignment with our, uh, our financial incentives around, around making people healthy. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is so true. That it, but you're describing a human system, aren't you? It, it was created a certain way based upon a certain set of assumptions, which means it can be recreated using different assumptions. And, and the, the process for this, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm talking about Elon Musk so much today, but, but, but I, he, he, something that he's used as a philosophical principle, uh, established in philosophy you know, millennia ago, but it's called first principle thinking. And the different, and this is what it is it, 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 in a nutshell. There are three ways of making decisions. You can say, well, what have we done in the past? Let's keep doing that. That's one approach. You can say, well, what's everyone else doing? Benchmark against everyone else in your industry, which is a sort of a similar version of the first question. Or you can go back to first principle. And first principle means what do we absolutely know for sure? And make decisions and design from there. This 
is the answer to a question that's been fascinating to me about the breakthroughs in, in, in engineering technology that, that Elon Musk has been able to, to lead. This is how it's being done. It, it's not my, some magic, it's not mystery. It's going back to what you know for sure and building from there and not going from how we've simply done things in the past and what everyone else is doing in our industry. That's bold. But it's not crazy. It's not like wildness. You're going back to actual what we know and what is true. What do we know for sure about health? For absolutely sure and design from there. And then you can build new, of course you could build new business systems. Of course you can build new incentive programs. Of course you can do that. I know what I'm saying sounds is revolutionary if, it would, if we were doing it in practice. But we're not talking about crazy things either. I think actually, in hindsight, if you take like 100 years from now, what will be crazy is our current system. This will, in 100 years from now, what we're doing now will be the bloodletting of our generation. It isn't working. <laughs> you know, I mean, you said at the very beginning that, the, the, that uh, oh no, the, the, yeah, the, the, all these, we're not getting the right results that we want to get. It's, it's costing too much. The output, it's not working. The data is against the systems. We could do something amazing about that, but you have to go back to this foundational way of thinking. Uh, what do we know for sure and build from there?